I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Isn't that good stuff? That's from their brand new recording. Um, it's called Moon. With me in the uh, air studio here is Jim Shorney. Jim, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I've got the wrong mic up. There you go, Jim. Try it again. I'm much better now, thanks. I, I am fine. How are you doing, Scott? Uh, how's the coffee? Have you had a chance to taste it Yes, yet? I have. It's very good. Thank you. Mr. Jack Reacher, thank you so much. Thank you, Jack. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what's been going on with you this week? Have you had a, a good week? Pretty good week. Uh, you know, as we were discussing off mic, business is picking up a little bit. And uh, so we know that we all have jobs for a little while yet, at least. Good. And we've had some rain here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Some we have. rain. Torrential and, uh, rain at times. A little teeny bit of rain over the uh, last night here that mm-hmm. was kind of, I think, a 20% chance. So we had, we're grateful for that. I've had my lawn sprinkler turned off now for four good. or five days, which is good. Good. And... Uh, I've had a pretty good week. Uh, we had a, a Celebrate Make Music Day on Thursday, did which was make, the summer solstice. Did you make music? And there were 800 locations around the world, over 800 locations, that were taking part in this. And it was to celebrate the first day of summer. Mm-hmm. And so we got together and played music. And I... Uh, I played a song for some of the folks assembled, and we kind of jumped into it. Um, if I only had a brain from the Wizard of Oz, <laughs> and uh, I've told people this is sort of my my theme song because my kids have told people for a long time that I've got no brains. Yeah, Dad so, doesn't know anything. You know, I I don't want to have a, a CAT scan or an MRI of my of my head because the doctor will come out and say to my kids. They'll say, you know, it's like you guys suspected for a long time. It's just a big, empty room with an echo. Well, you know, it's an old axiom, and it's true that the older they get, the smarter their parents get. So, just they'll, they'll appreciate it eventually. Uh, this is a, a, I won't read it. Um, it's a personal note, but uh, uh, Dick Noble's uh, wife, uh, Nettie, sent me uh, an appreciation card for the tribute that we did on the mm-hmm. air for uh, Dick Noble, former KZUM station manager, uh, who has passed away. And a uh, great guy. Enjoyed the camaraderie with Dick and all the things that, that he taught me over the years. So, uh, Nettie Noble, thank you so much for that uh, uh, that warm and, and, and really fine uh, fine card that you sent We've got a, a great show this week. I need to kind of unpile some cords here. We've yeah, got extra cords. Unplug my tablet here. Um, we're going to start the show off with, as we always do, Charlene with the Capital Humane Society and Pet Talk. Then we've got Rosemary. She'll be on her cell phone today, by the way. Okay. And uh, then we've got our main guest, Paul Blake Smith. And I think you'll enjoy this program a lot. We sort of trigger when we talk about UFO events and we talk about the Roswell crash of 1947. What if there were earlier events? We're going to talk about that today. Let's kick things off with Charlene in the Capital Humane Society. She should be right there. Hi, Charlene. 
Good morning. How are you and all the staff doing? We're doing really well. Things are moving along. We're getting ready to open our doors in 45 minutes. So we're uh, cleaning and getting everything ready. Um, Chiefs tickets for a cause. What's going on? So that is for our KC fans. Um, we have information on our website, um, but the ticket sales will result in a donation to Capital Humane Society. So uh, you can find more information again at capitalhumanesociety.org. And there's different ways to help us. And by purchasing these tickets is one of those ways. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, cats coming up for adoption here in just a moment. When people come out to see you today and tomorrow, what could they bring you for donated items? What are you in need of? We could really use canned dog and cat food. Um, that helps us uh, with the animals that are a little bit pickier and also when we have to hide a pill for some medicine. <laughs> so the canned food would be great for both dogs and cats. And then we do have small animals, rabbits, guinea pigs, and we use a lot of Timothy hay. So those items would be very appreciated. I've always been curious about that name, Timothy Hay. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's good. I wish I knew more to, to help answer that, but it's a, a healthy hay that the critters really enjoy. Well, and, I, and I looked it up one time and I had the explanation, but it's slipped my mind. So you you can use your favorite search engine to find it. Yeah, I should probably look that up myself. Yeah. And I'll, I'll do so after the program here today. Well, we are at CapitalHumaneSociety.org, and we've got the page for cats and kittens queued up. And who do you want to start with today? I would like to start with Jinx. <laughs> and Jinx is a very handsome cat. He's got big eyes in his pictures, long white whiskers. He did have to be shaved, so he has a fancy little summer cut. He's about three years old, a domestic long hair when all his fur grows back. He was surrendered to the Humane Society because his former family moved, and our staff just think he's adorable. He's always stretching and rolling and purring, so we are hoping he finds a great home soon. He's got a great uh, uh, mustache or, or whiskers there also, <laughs> and a little white patch right between his eyes. Uh-huh. Very distinctive-looking cat, Jinx, J-I-N-X. And uh, what a great cat to start things off with. Jinx is joined by... Macaroni. <laughs> and she is so cute. She has just soft, pretty eyes. Uh, about two years old. Uh, she'll just be an adorable friend. She's always, like, stretched out in these funny yoga poses. <laughs> so she'll be very entertaining, and you'll just love her. Now you can try to stick a cat in your hat and call it macaroni, but that's probably go. not going to go well for you. <laughs> <laughs> A great-looking cat. Uh, again, pictures for Jinx and Macaroni are up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Two great cats, and who's our third? Mike, and he is a three-year-old neutered male, domestic short hair, has fabulous tabby markings. He's kind of kneading in his photo there. He's very engaging. Uh, he is not a fan of other felines, so he'd like to be your one and only cat. Uh, but he will be a delightful companion. Looks like he's got a big old grin on his face, doesn't he? Uh-huh. <laughs> Break the cat. Yeah. <laughs> when we were taking the picture, he was just very curious about the camera. And again, he was very relaxed. You can see his paw kind of kneading there in a re very relaxed manner. 
Uh, three great cats, Jinx, Macaroni, and Mike. Pictures are up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org, and you can go out and see them today and tomorrow. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. And canned dog and cat and kitten chow would be greatly appreciated. And uh, you could drop off some donated items and go out and see the cats and dog. Dogs? we got some dogs for adoptions, too, don't we? Here they are. We do. Who's up? We will start with Apollo. And he's 11 months old, a blue healer, a neutered male. He's very sweet, but he did kind of have a rough start in life. So he needs somebody who's going to work with him, train him. Uh, He does kind of get nervous with loud noises. So he's looking for a calm home and a patient owner, uh, again, who understands the breed and who knows that he needs just some work. But he is going to be a very devoted friend for somebody who invests some time in him. Okay, and he's got that that expression that, Mom, Dad, I'm ready to go. Uh-huh. What yep. are we doing? Yep. Where are we going? <laughs> Apollo, his picture's up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Our next dog is? Bruce, and Bruce is very handsome. He's a Mastiff pit bull mix. He has the brindle colors. He's about a year old, close to two years old. He's a very big and strong dog, but super smart, very playful, looking for somebody who can work with him. Um, he is exuberant, so he does need someone who understands uh, that, again, with his strength and things, he needs some work. Um, but he's just so smart. He will catch on very quickly. Um, if he's taught with a, a positive reinforcement technique, he's going to just love having treats and being told he's a good boy. And both of these dogs will be great dogs for your permanent weight loss program, going out twice a day for a walk. And Mac, the good dog, and I go out nightly for our walk on the neighborhood and really enjoy it. So you've got two good dogs so far, Apollo and Bruce. When you see Bruce's picture, he's got great facial markings. And he's got that kind of quizzical, uh, inquiring look on his face, his head's tilted like, what? Run that by me again? What was that? <laughs> and again, he's just so intelligent. He'll, he'll catch on to new commands very fast. Okay, our third dog is? Milo. Milo is a Walker Coonhound, a neutered male, very vocal breed. So he's not going to do well in an apartment or even a duplex. He needs someone who understands that's just part of their trait is that they like to bark. So um, we need somebody who understands the breed, um, who appreciates the breed, um, but he's a great friend, really wants to be a loyal companion. Uh, Pictures up of all these dogs. Milo looks like he'd be a lot of fun. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm going to pull an audible for a fourth dog, Brandy, because Brandy, you're a fine girl. There, I got that on my system. <laughs> also a beautiful coon hound. So if that is your favorite breed, please come visit these beautiful dogs. They need people to take them home and give them a fabulous new home forever. Could be a wonderful Saturday for you and the and the family. The kids may be out there. So um, appreciate you guys and gals your support of the Capital Humane Society. Get some cans of uh, dog, cat, or kitten chow and go out and take a look at these fine cats and dogs.
for adoption. Your hour is open again today and tomorrow. We are open Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530 at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. Okay, thank you so much for all that you do, Charlene. And we will talk to you in two weeks. That sounds great. Thank you for everything. Okay, thank you. Okay, that was a, that was a lot of fun. I just, you know, at times I just have to resort to singing because it just wants to just leap out. Um, if I had a guitar here, it'd probably be the same thing with a, with a guitar. First day of summer. Now we can actually complain about the summer because we're here. Thursday was the first day of summer. It's the summer solstice. Uh, the earth now has rotated enough around the sun that we're going to experience a little bit more daylight. Um, the mm-hmm. other way to look at this now is that we've almost reached the zenith of our daylight, and then we're going to start walking away from that towards the uh, autumnal equinox, or when there is less... Yeah, the winter yeah. solstice, the, the fall and, solstice. And the heat has continued to build as the planet catches up with the sun. So uh, it's going to be a warm summer. With me here in the studio is uh, Jim. And I'm Scott Colborn. You guys and gals are out there. It's time for always interesting uh, update from our friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley. This is In the Dark with Rosemary. And Rosemary, where do you where do we find you this this wonderful morning? I am in Alton, Illinois, for the annual Haunted America conference that Troy Taylor puts on every year, and I love it. It's one of my favorite events. It's so dynamic. Uh, it's big and lively every year. There are a lot of returning uh, people. I've been working with Troy for over twenty years now, and um, various uh, things, including his events. So uh, my particular role this year is uh, to emphasize reunion with the dead. And uh, I did a workshop last night on using black mirrors for contacting the dead. And tonight I'm conducting for the first time ever at Haunt in America a dumb supper, which is a ritual meal uh, for remembrance and honoring of the dead. I've, I've heard that term before. Why, why do they call it that and where does that come from? Do you know the background that? I do, and uh, dumb means silent. It's, you know, an old traditional uh, term for, for silence. Uh, and so the early roots of this uh, go back, um, the earliest reference I found to the Dumb Supper was the 1600s. And in the 1800s, um, late 1700s and into the 1800s, it was a divination ritual. That was its origin. And it was for young women to learn the names of their future husbands. Uh, And so this meal, uh, because the dead know these things, that's the belief that the dead know the future. And so a meal would be set for the dead. And this usually would be conducted at midnight. Uh, Everything is in reverse. The place settings, the order of the meal, you start with the dessert or a sweet, and you end with a salad or an appetizer. And the meal is eaten in silence, and a place is set for the dead. And it was the hope of the young ladies who were present that the dead would show up to enjoy the food. And in the course of that would reveal the identities of their future husbands. 
So this ritual now has been transformed into a remembrance ceremony. And uh, this is largely uh, um, thanks to the, the Wiccan and pagan communities uh, who, you know, like to do rituals to honor the dead. And so the meal is done in reverse order and in silence, except I play music in the background for people to focus on. And uh, the participants are invited to remember uh, those we've, uh, we've lost to the other side, uh, including our pets, our friends, family people we've admired, um, and um, uh, so we contemplate that during the course of the meal, and there is an altar set up where people can place uh, keepsakes and things. It winds up being a very powerful experience for people. Mm -hmm. You know, we here in the West really don't take much time out to continually energize the presence of the dead in our lives. Uh, we have our funerals. Uh, and burial services, and then, uh, you know, we make our periodic visits to the graveside. But um, we don't have much in the way of rich uh, ritual and custom to uh, to keep the presence of the dead um, literally alive to us, uh, unlike other cultures. And so this is one way to do that. It, it really does uh, reconnect people emotionally to those who aren't with us anymore, and it's a very, very powerful experience. And the uh, the dead certainly have something uh, yet to teach us. It seems like we're very, very curious uh, about what happens uh, upon or after death, because we're all going to be part of that journey. We all come to it sooner or later, and uh, the dead have had a lot to say about the afterlife. Um, and there are, there are variations, of course, that we might expect from cultural and religious influences. But by and large, the picture that emerges is that the afterlife is like life on Earth. It's fluid. It's changing. Um, there, there isn't a, a final judgment and with a condemnation for eternity to hell or reward for eternity to heaven. Um, we experience the afterlife in accordance with how we've lived our life. And if we've lived it well uh, and uh, we've done well and good in life, then the afterlife uh, will be similar in that fashion. And uh, if we've... Um, led a wicked life uh, and done bad things, then uh, the afterlife is going to be rather unpleasant for us. But there are opportunities for change. And uh, the dead do stress this, that uh, people continue to grow and evolve, and uh, redemption is possible. And even those souls who start out in rather uh, gloomy um, areas of the afterlife uh, have the opportunity to change their situation. Uh, and it's all a matter of free will choice with a lot of spiritual assistance. So uh, that's what the dead have been telling us for quite some time about the afterlife, um, totally ignored by a lot of organized Western religion, which would uh, rather beat us over the head with a club about, um, you know, sin and eternal condemnation. Um, religion is good at, at helping people to lead a better life, to shape themselves up ethically and morally. But um, I, I think we've, uh, in, especially in Christianity, overemphasized the negative. You know, if you do this, you will meet God and be condemned forever. 
And uh, the dead tell us it's not like that. Uh, it's an entirely different scenario. And Matthew Fox was the excommunicated uh, priest who wrote a book called Original Blessing, and he uh, just posed that question, you know, where do you put your trust and your belief in, uh, original sin or original blessing? And he said there's a lot that flows from that. You have been... Exactly. Rosemary, you have been so incredibly busy. You have got this publishing company that has just taken off with a roar. Uh, well, it has, you know, and it's, it's, the company has actually been around a while, but it was uh, kind of a, I would say, a sleepy little operation. Uh, not little, but kind of sleepy. I did uh, some of my own work, uh, things that uh, were pet projects of mine and co-authored projects. And then a few years ago, um, due to conversations I had with people who were looking for publishers for their very worthy uh, manuscripts, uh, the industry had really changed to enable the establishment and growth of independent houses uh, to address topics and, and fields of research that now have been literally abandoned by traditional publishers because they don't see enough money in it anymore. And uh, yet there, uh, there continue to be authors who are uh, putting out absolutely phenomenal work in uh, the paranormal and metaphysics, body, mind, spirit. So uh, I decided to grow my publishing company, and it, uh, as, as you said, it's, it's really taken off now. Um, I've had three bestsellers just in the past year, and uh, my current bestseller is Haunted Hills and Hollows, What Lurks in Greene County, Pennsylvania, which actually, I must confess, took me a bit by surprise because it's a regional book, and regional books tend to do well. Uh, and steadily, but, um, you know, they're regional books. Uh, and who would be interested in, in Pennsylvania except maybe people who live around that area? But I think it's the nature of the stories in the book that uh, it's captured a, a much wider audience. And uh, we hit the Amazon bestseller um, in three categories, and it's still booming along. That is wonderful news. We've got you and Kevin Paul scheduled August 18th for a conversation on that brand new book, Haunted Hills and Hollows, What Lurks in Greene County, Pennsylvania. Uh, Visionary Living Publishing is a good link to go to to see all those brand new books. And uh, Rosemary, what would you be doing at the event this weekend in Illinois, if you weren't doing your own presentations, are there other interesting events taking place there uh, bes besides yours? Uh, I don't know about other events, but whenever I travel, there are always interesting places to go to of historical note, um, sacred sites, uh, interesting cemeteries, uh, haunted locations. Uh, this little town of Alton itself, which, which used to be a very dynamic river port uh, back in the day of the, um, the paddle boats uh, that uh, went up and down the Mississippi, um, has a very haunted history. And it, it's also tied into the Civil War. Um, a lot of um, soldiers who were imprisoned were uh, taken to Alton and uh, put in very cramped quarters. Um, a lot of other historical activities have left residual imprints in Alton. Uh, and so you could spend quite a bit of time in this tiny little town, which is 
uh, just on the outskirts of St. Louis, um, investigating these things, and which I have done in the past. Uh, this conference has been in Alton uh, on and off over a period of 20 years, and uh, so I'm quite familiar with the lay of the land here. Uh, and I would imagine these personal appearances also uh, help you connect uh, with your uh, uh, fans, your the folks that buy your books, as well as to to get more of those personal stories from people, those anecdotes. You know, uh, Rosemary, I saw you here last year, and I didn't get a chance to tell you this, but I want to tell you about my personal experience. And boom, so you probably hear a lot of those. I do uh, every year, and um, it's very important to to meet people and network in this way. Uh, and I do get a lot of material that way as well. And then, uh, of course, people will email me afterwards. So uh, there's about four or five hundred people here this weekend, and um, as I mentioned, it's always a good crowd. It's a very dynamic event. Rosemary, we really appreciate you, and thank you for all that you do. We're going to look forward to the conversation coming up. Uh, in August with you and Kevin Paul, Haunted Hills and Hollows, What Lurks in Greene County, Pennsylvania. And if you're in that Alton, Illinois area, catch Rosemary Ellen Guiley this weekend. Rosemary, all the best to you and Joe. Well, thank you, Scott. And we've got some great stories to tell in August, so we'll look forward <laughs> to it, too. I'll look forward to that. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye now. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com is her main website. And then Visionary Living Publishing, you'll find all those book links and excerpts and things for the books there. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, she joins us every fourth Saturday as a regular reoccurring guest for In the Dark with Rosemary. I've heard a lot about that Troy, Troy Taylor event uh, in Alton. Okay, I'm going to do the bottom of the hour break, and we'll come back with Paul Blake-Smith. Sounds like a plan. How are the donuts? Great. And the coffee? Jack Reacher coffee. <laughs> Supreme. Okay. <laughs> We're sure enjoying being here. Thanks you, uh, to you guys and gals for being out there. Here's some more music from Enigma. We'll be right back after this. Scott Colborn with Jim and you guys and gals. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. We're enjoying uh, the uh, beverages here, the camaraderie, and uh, I'm going to be enjoy our, our next uh, our guest in conversation. We've got Paul Blake Smith with us again, and Paul has done previous shows. I think that this is such an important topic that I've asked him to come back and talk to us again. He's written two books on the subject of what happened outside the small town of Cape Girardeau, Missouri in, we believe, April of 1941. The first book is called M.O. 41. That stands for Missouri 41. M.O. 41, the bombshell before Roswell. And the second book, which is a follow-up book of sorts, Three Presidents... Two accidents, more MO41 UFO crash data, and surprises. Let's welcome back to the broadcast Paul Blake Smith. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Scott. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm enjoying some great coffee 
And uh, where do you make your home? What part of Missouri? I live in Springfield, Missouri, across the state. Sure. Cape Girardeau was my home for about 33 years. Yeah, I uh, used to go down to a UFO conference in Springfield and uh, know, awesome, the, right. know the town very well, uh, just across the border from Eureka Springs, Arkansas. That's right. Uh, so, Paul, uh, you've written these two books now, and you've tried to put everything into these two books that you found out and that you've gathered on this uh, the singular event. So there are people that, even though we've talked before in the program, there are many people listening that have never heard you tell any sort of a story about this. So let's lay the groundwork of what happened in Missouri in, we believe, April of 1941. Uh, the narrative comes from uh, largely, but not entirely, the uh, Huffman family, where Reverend William Huffman lived in Cape Girardeau as a pastor. He was a fundraiser, basically, so he was home on what I feel was the night of the crash, Saturday night, April 12th. Uh, the next day was Easter morning. He was not scheduled to give any uh, pastoral services uh, because he was uh, trying to raise funds for the church, which was uh, in a bit of a disrepair state. So he was home, and he got a phone call one night, and he went rushing out uh, in an unmarked car. And he came back around midnight and told his family, I'm going to tell you where I've been just once, and then I'm never going to speak about this again. And he was quite shaken, quite pale. And he told his family, you know that phone call that uh, got me out of the house this evening, uh, just after dark? Well, it was around midnight when he was telling his family that was supposed to be uh, an airplane crash outside of town. And so he went out with a man associated with the Cape Girardeau Police Department. They thought it was all hands on deck, a terrible accident, that there would be um, dead and injured. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a fire department and police department, and there, there were flames out in this farm field, he said. But it was not a cylindrical, man-made craft. He said it was a round, silver-gray, disc-shaped vehicle with no propellers and no exhaust pipe and no wheels or wings and it uh, was cracked open and he could peek inside and see a bit of a flight deck or a uh, cockpit if you will and he could see little gauges and dials and a tiny uh, seat or two uh, as if uh, a child had been sitting at it and off to the side were three uh, bodies one of them still alive his chest uh, breathing, he was respirating, his uh, lungs were working, just barely, and the other two were dead. And uh, he asked and found out later that uh, someone who had rushed to the crash site pulled the two dead, dead bodies out and then a third one that was still alive. Uh, they don't know what caused the crash. But the third one, he knelt over with his Bible and decided to say some prayers. That's why he was there, to offer spiritual comfort to what he thought were going to be human victims of an airplane crash. And as he was saying his prayers, the creature uh, collapsed and died. He was on his back, but he was uh, no longer respirating. He was inert, and it was obvious he was dead. Uh, while he was uh, saying his prayers, uh, two local men propped up one of the dead aliens and posed for a photograph with him, uh, with his arms outstretched, if we can call the alien a he. Uh, it was um, uh, a gray with crinkly gray skin or perhaps a flight suit. Uh, it was tough to make out. 
It was such an alien creature. Its uh, skin could have been affected by our oxygen-rich atmosphere. And it had long, thin arms and legs and uh, three fingers on each hand and a long thumb. And it had huge black eyes and two tiny little dots for nostrils and a slit, just barely a little slit for a mouth and no ears. So someone took out a box camera and took a picture of the two men holding up the alien. And shortly thereafter, uh, there were lights and sounds and engines, and uh, there were a, a new invader at the uh, crash site on this farm. It was the United States military. They came rolling in and said, put that debris down. We'll take all your photos and notes. You're not to speak of this ever again. It's a matter of national security. Uh, we will swear you to secrecy. And then they said, uh, Reverend William Huffman said he was taken into the back of a military truck along with two Cape Girardeau firemen and told... Uh, you will never speak of this again and swore to an oath, which Reverend Huffman promptly broke when he got home to his family around midnight to explain where he had gone. So um, I've heard of this story uh, in the late 1990s in Cape Girardeau, and it started to appear on a sci-fi channel briefly for a couple of minutes, and then Hangar One uh, on the History Channel. And so I thought, where is a good book on this? I'd really like to know more. It's my hometown. And I would ask around, and no one had anything. Uh, an occasional paragraph would appear in a UFO book, so I thought I could write about this. I could create a book. I'm gathering so much information. So I did, and I <laughs> printed that. I got it published, rather, and uh, I got even more stories coming in, so I had enough material for a second book. Mm -hmm. I, I would hope that uh, some of the other uh, UFO researchers uh, read your information uh, and acknowledge your work, because... Uh, I have regarded, since I've read both of your books, you as being um, uh, one of the leading experts, if not the world's expert in this. Uh, how has this changed you, Paul, when you started to first collect the information and then you started to put all these pieces together like a gigantic puzzle? Right. Uh, did, did it has it, not really changed me, and I would like to see the story get more publicity. It did appear in a uh, Ancient Aliens episode, in which they showed the cover of my book. You almost never see that on that program, and they did two or three minutes on the Cape Girardeau crash. And I know Linda Moulton Howe was most impressed, and she gives speeches around the country and, and uh, talks up my book and had me on her Earth Files uh, program within uh, Coast to Coast AM. And I spent a couple hours as the guest of uh, George Knapp. And so uh, that's all very nice, but uh, I'd love to see someone come in and make a theatrical movie or a documentary, maybe a television program. I know they're uh, renewing the old In Search Of, which used to have Leonard Nimoy, who played Mr. Spock. And now the current Mr. Spock, Zachary Quinto, has uh, taken up the mantle, and they're going to be, be producing new editions of that show. So I sent them copies of uh, both books. I've not heard back from them, but uh, they may not need to uh, speak to me. I crammed so much information in my books. There's plenty to chew on, as you found out uh, yourself. Mm -hmm. So most of the people that were eyewitnesses to this event, uh, almost to a person, have since passed on. Because, right. you know, we're looking at uh, 1941. That's 70, what, 77 years ago? Right. So, ladies and gentlemen, one of the reasons why I have Paul back on the program is that 
I want to do kind of a, an appeal to you folks listening live, as well as all the folks that will hear this archive program. Because that there are so many folks that took part in this event, the recovery, the removal of, of the debris, uh, even the cover-up, if you will, there are folks out there that would have known about this that perhaps either wrote about it, kept a memento. Part of that may be in a family trunk, a photo album. There could still be information. And so my appeal is to the people that had relatives that lived in Chaffee, in Cape Girardeau, uh, in that area, uh, perhaps that served uh, at the, uh, the Army airfield that was close by, that you might want to take a look again at some of that memorabilia because hidden away may be a reference that would be so important to hear about. And you'd welcome more people coming forward, wouldn't you, Paul? I sure would uh, encourage anyone to come forward with a diary or an old snapshot or any sort of uh, secondhand family recollection, what they heard or what their uh, relatives heard. It would be uh, most fascinating and helpful. Tell me about, uh, on your, your website, there is, um, I believe, a letter from FDR to the Army Chief of Staff. And what does that, in general, what does that reference? It references uh, these wonders that have come, celestial wonders that have come to us. And he's making oblique references to something that has been recovered uh, that is now under the purview of the Non-Terrestrial Science and Technology Committee. Uh, America wanted to find out, of course, what was going on with this material, how can we exploit it and help our uh, war effort, since war broke out uh, in late 1941, uh, perhaps an effort to weaponize uh, the uh, engine or fission material within uh, the spacecraft that was recovered. I'm convinced that the top scientists of the day Dr. Vannevar Bush was part of this. Uh, I checked White House records from Franklin Roosevelt's day, and just two or three days after the crash recovery, Dr. Vannevar Bush was recorded as coming into the Oval Office for a special face-to-face meeting with Franklin Roosevelt. So uh, in talking to uh, some UFO people like Ryan Wood, who keeps a very fine website called uh, www.majesticdocuments.com that goes into more on Dr. Bush and what's been recovered, that he feels that it was Dr. Bush who did an autopsy of the spacecraft and that he would have been the, the natural, normal choice. This was FDR's most trusted scientist that he had had contact with prior to uh, April of 41. So it makes perfect sense. The memo so, uh, that we referred to was written in February of 1942. And yeah. we didn't have words like flying saucers and right. UFOs. So I find that telling that FDR would use the term celestial devices yeah finding practical um practical uses for the atomic secrets learned from study of celestial devices interesting it's 
it's a blockbuster story that may be just sitting there. I sure wish we could get some more confirmation of this, that it's possible that our atomic weapon program, which was slowly developing, even seemingly stalled for a while, suddenly blossomed uh, alongside this recovery and inspection of this alien craft from the uh, Cape Girardeau farm field. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't absolutely prove that it had something to do with it, but uh, the, the clues I tried to put together are in the book, and uh, it is a, an amazing story. But FDR had to dictate this to his secretary and get these messages out that could be possibly seen by others. So he had to use somewhat oblique terms and not come right out and say, oh, we found this uh, alien craft. And as you point out, um, they didn't use the term UFO or extraterrestrial or uh, space alien in those days. Uh, it, the terminology was just very different, including the word aerodyne was uh, used. Uh, I'm finding uh, that's an antiquated reference to a, a spacecraft. Mm -hmm. This is Paul Blake Smith, and uh, his first book that I'm holding in my hand is MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell. So um, we're going to kind of keep laying this story out during the program here. You have the uh, the uh, anecdotes from Reverend Huffman, and apparently, as I understand from reading your book, uh, his wife, as she was dying, confided this story initially to her daughter. Right. And so her daughter took copious notes of what her mother was saying, what had happened back then. And then you've begun this process that has culminated now in two books of trying to bring these pieces, all these disparate pieces together to give us a picture of what happened in April 1941, including in the back of your book, MO41, there is a typed admission by an ex-CIA and ex-CIC agent, Thomas Cartwheel, that he had learned of the Cape Girardeau crash while he was in service. That was the first thing he wanted to get off his chest when he was typing a confession towards the end of his life when he also had cancer. He said there was an aerodyne recovered from uh, southern Missouri in 1941. He wanted to tell the world about this. It was a shocking secret, and certainly no one knew anything about Roswell or 1947's UFO crash at the time or any idea that we were being watched or uh, visited by alien creatures. So it was just a stunning, staggering story that I'm sure many people at the time could not wrap their minds around. Mm -hmm. At this uh, early onset of our conversation, too, one of the things I want you folks to keep in mind is that the Cape Girardeau crash of 1941 set into motion a number of things at very high levels of government and military. Upon the recovery of this device and these unfortunate beings that perished in that crash, aspects of our military and government knew that we were being visited. They could tell from the debris, they could tell from the bodies recovered that these were not Germans, Russians, Chinese, British, Mexicans, 
Canadians, Americans. These were people, sentient beings from elsewhere, and they had a technology that was totally different from what we're using in 1941. So when the San Antonio, New Mexico crash that Paula Harris has uncovered, when that happened in 1945, when the 1947 Roswell crash happened, when the Aztec, New Mexico crash happened, there were already people in place that knew about this stuff. They were not rediscovering the wheel for the first time. It had already been done in 1941. So if you, if you go back and read some of that information about those other events, keeping in mind that Cape Girardeau happened in 1941, that gives you a little bit of a different perspective on some of the responses that the military and government had to those subsequent crashes. And it's all because of this gentleman's work, Paul Blake Smith. Paul, let me take the top of the hour break and have you come back and make some more comments here about, uh, about what I've just tried to lay out here. And we'll talk more about that, that event. Uh, what's, by the way, Paul, what's in your, your cup this morning? Are you a coffee drinker? Uh, just some water. How'd you get to be a big guy without drinking coffee? <laughs> I don't know. I've never cared for coffee or tea or alcohol. It's just very strange. Yeah, I'm no alcohol either, but I sure like my coffee. Well, <laughs> my friend, you stay right there. Uh, air conditioning working good? It is. Okay. We'll be right back, Paul, with, uh, with more conversation. It's Scott Colborn, Jim, our special guest, Paul Blake Smith. And you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena right after this. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty. You guys and gals, and our special guest, Paul Blake Smith, the author of two books on the crash outside Cape Girardeau, Missouri in 1941. Paul, would you agree that uh, if we accept, because of your very, very good work, that this crash took place in 41, that it changes our perception of what happened in subsequent events and crashes? That certainly could be. Uh, from what I've read about Roswell, for instance, they said uh, an outside force of military intelligence people arrived and boxed up the evidence, talked to witnesses, told them, you didn't see this, this never happened, squelched the news stories. It wasn't uh, the troops from the nearby Roswell base. And it leads you to believe that, um, at the very least, the Cape Girardeau crash led to a formation of a special uh, army unit with uh, the most trusted officers who would be at the ready to handle any future crashes and keep this uh, hushed up from the public. And I believe that's what's happened. Any speculation or conjecture on your part as to what brought that craft down in Missouri in 1941? It's a very good question, and I, after all this study, I still don't know. Could have been weather conditions. It was extraordinarily warm and windy for that Easter weekend in Cape Girardeau. Uh, the previous year, Easter weekend featured a blizzard in Cape Girardeau, many inches of snow, very unusual. 
So there's weather patterns, and uh, aliens have to deal with our gravitational forces and uh, other uh, things that they don't understand, like uh, magnetic fields in uh, flying a spaceship that uh, somehow can come here. And they also have to deal with any mechanical errors on their part or pilot error. So it could be any of those things. And let's face it, a stray shot from World War II that was being waged in Europe that particular weekend was a vicious, violent Nazi assault on uh, England that they remember uh, with great bitterness and sadness. Uh, who knows if uh, an extraterrestrial craft was cruising around observing and got hit by a stray shell and uh, made it to uh, a farm field in Missouri before it came to a crash land. It's just uh, pure speculation. The Army airfield nearby, uh, is it is it Sykeston? Right. Uh, they probably had some form of radar and there has been a theory that some of our radar units uh, may have interfered in New Mexico with some of the UFOs. So Yes, I've heard that. That's a possibility. I don't know for sure if the Sykeston Airport that had an Army training field attached to it had radar, but it's uh, very possible. And as you say, the, the weather conditions, that's been alluded to uh, many times for the Roswell event in 1947. Um, so we've got a craft that came down. Do you think that the that the rest of these people, these sentient beings, the colleagues and friends or family of those three that perished in that crash, do you think they were aware of it? That's another good question. How could they possibly sit back and do nothing to recover the crash on their own? Uh, it could have been uh, a, a group of rogue extraterrestrials out for a joyride, for all we know. Uh, it could have been a reconnaissance mission that something else was up. But uh, human beings converge on the crash site so fast, and then the Army, perhaps within an hour or two, showed up and uh, took all the bodies and the evidence away on flatbed trucks or canvas-back-covered trucks that uh, extraterrestrials, if they were observing, were helpless. Uh, they didn't want a, a further wider incident that would be difficult to control. Um, it leads to uh, speculation as what they were doing there in the first place. And uh, there's a story that I uncovered after my first book came out. Uh, one man said there's stories that he heard from uh, a house uh, about a mile away that they had some material come down on their yard. So um, mm -hmm. uh, there's another story, another source came to me and said, in 1946, about a year after the war, about five years after the crash, uh, a number of citizens, maybe literally dozens of them, saw a UFO land, some extraterrestrials get out and walk around an open field that was not far from this house that would have been a second crash site. And uh, the cops showed up and kept the crowds at bay and said, leave them alone, uh, let them be. The aliens got back in the craft, and it took off very suddenly into the sky at an astonishing rate. Now, I don't have what you would need in journalism, two sources to go forward with a story. These are only one-source stories. I don't know why anyone would lie, but they're interesting, and they would kind of make sense that at least five years later, did aliens come back looking for their crashed brethren? 
Uh, it might be an example, but once again, this is conjecture. Mm-hmm. This is Paul Blake Smith, and uh, his website is fairly easy to find. It's mo and then numerical four one dot info. Mo four one dot info. His book is Mo forty one: The Bombshell Before Roswell. The follow up book: Three Presidents, Two Accidents, More. MO-41 UFO crash data and surprises. Let's talk, Paul, about um, the veracity of Reverend Huffman. Uh, Do you have any reason to suspect that he was a hoaxer, liar, drug taker, alcoholic, suffering from mental illness? Right, that's another good point. What research I did, I found out he was a former school teacher and that uh, he was a highly um, uh, trained preacher who did uh, a number of years in preparation uh, in, in Christian school, learning to become a minister and help with fundraising. I went to the church in Cape Girardeau, and a few people said that they had um, uh, people tell them from their memories, the older generation, that Reverend Huffin was very well thought of and they produced some records that showed that uh, he had helped uh, baptize 76, I think was the number of people during his time in Cape Girardeau, to convert them to Christianity, and he was very dedicated to the church, and his family was too. They helped raise funds for it. And then in the middle of World War II, he lost a son in battle in Europe, and he was uh, soon transferred to a... um, uh, a church in Oklahoma, I think called Kingfisher, Oklahoma. So he moved his whole family that was grieving at the time, and I don't believe they ever came back uh, to Cape. Mm-hmm. So uh, from what I have discovered, he was a, a, a mild-mannered, quiet man, and after the event, he grew even more quiet. He was really uh, shaken up by it, uh, supposedly for the rest of his life, as you can understand. Uh, who lived directly across the street from him? In my research, I found out that was uh, the Justice of the Peace in Cape Girardeau. And he often worked with the police department. And he had a view looking right out his front window at Reverend Huffman. And I found out uh, since the book was published that the Justice of the Peace was a member of the Red Star Tabernacle, the church that Reverend Huffman was associated with and went to work with uh, or work for every day. So that um, it makes perfect sense for... Uh, the Justice of the Peace, Mr. Cobb, to have phoned up his neighbor when he could clearly see the lights on at night uh, to say, I've just been called about an airplane crash, and we're both Christians. Why don't we go and and seek uh, uh, some um, uh, victims out and uh, administer to them as best we can and do our part? So the, the fire department, the police were there, and so were the FBI, and so it makes sense in a very Christian community, very uh, conservative community of 20,000 people, that uh, a pastor would be called in. Mm-hmm. Especially because at that point, uh, they believed it may have been a plane that had come down. Right. And it wasn't all that far from the airport. It was just after dark. I talked to a man who said his grandmother knew the farmhand who had seen the crash, saw the fireball and raced inside and called the uh, Cape Police and Fire Department. They shared the same building, and it was like an emergency. You thought, for sure, this is an airplane crash. We've got to do something fast, and that's what set the ball in motion that night. Mm-hmm. It, we need to also think about the, the 
a technological base that we had and the day-to-day living that these people and families, especially the rural ones, experienced. Uh, my grandparents that, that lived on a farm outside of Hardy, Nebraska, by the Nebraska-Kansas border, they didn't get electricity until after World War II. Wow. Yeah, uh, many people did not have a phone, and when you did have a phone in Cape Girardeau, you usually had to contact first the operator who would put you in touch with the party you wanted. So there was the chance that the farm was pretty dark and quiet or candlelit with kerosene lamps and such. Yeah. Uh, I don't know for sure if the farm in question was electrified. Uh, I have an entire chapter in my book on a man who came forward on the topics online forum board who said my grandparents owned and farmed the land where the crash occurred and they wouldn't tell me too much they were still frightened at the uh, uh, last decades of their life to speak about it so he went and looked into it and found there was a man who had bought the farm from the older couple and he had found metallic debris down in the soil so uh, some of these things start to come together but i'm still not aware if there was electricity uh, per se in that farmhouse, uh, I would not be in, uh, surprised at all if there was not in 1941. So, somebody sees this crash, this whatever it was coming down, and it wouldn't have been a simple matter of pulling out their <laughs> cell phone and making a phone call. <laughs> they may have had to try to think, now, who's got a phone that I can use? And right. maybe, maybe one of the farms did. Maybe they had to actually drive into one of the towns to find a working phone to be able to call for help. Yeah, I'm sure their first worry was, here's a huge fire, and it could spread. It was spreading in this field, and they have all wooden structures, wooden barns, wooden farmhouses in those days. And they were probably most concerned about saving the farm and saving oh, any yeah. victims of the crash. So they had to spread word of mouth, maybe in the community, run next door. Uh, and, and next door, as you know, in farmland could be uh, like a mile in another direction before you find another farmhouse, mm-hmm. or at least half a mile, let's say. And so uh, maybe form a bucket brigade, look for the well water. Uh, we've got to do something about this fire that's spreading until the fire department arrives. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to know that a man in Cape Girardeau, Uh, was on his deathbed with cancer and said, I was a fireman in 1941, and that whole story of a UFO crash and the fire it spread, that is true, because I was there, and I helped fight the fire. I saw the alien bodies and the crash. That whole story from Reverend Huffman is absolutely true, he said. These deathbed confessions uh, have been ruled in court as admissible evidence uh, because it's thought that people on their deathbed are sincere, um, yeah. They have very little motivation to uh, perpetrate or continue any sort of a hoax, to lie outright. Uh, and uh, so I find that information also telling. Uh, it's a uh, good detail that the grandson related of what his dying grandfather said, in that the, as a fireman in 1941, he said, the Army caught me trying to pocket some of the debris, and they forced me to give it back, they chewed me out, and then they kicked me out of the farm site. And he said he felt like he was being watched in Cape Girardeau in the ensuing days and weeks afterwards, and that his phone was tapped. So that's an interesting, rich uh, pattern of detail that he gives 
that makes it sound like, indeed, this is a confession that maybe he's not even all that proud of, that you wouldn't want to admit that you were trying to swipe some uh, material and that you'd been uh, kicked out, that you were a bit of an outcast, and uh, suspicion was uh, placed upon you by the authorities. So uh, that may have been something he kept with him his whole life, and he wanted to get it off his chest. This is Paul Blake Smith, the author of two books on the crash outside of Cape Girardeau in 1941. I'm Scott Colborn, along with Jim, and you guys and gals, we are listening to, uh, a, hopefully you'll, you'll agree, a great conversation about this event. Um, Paul, this is conjecture on our part, it's supposition, but what purpose did this crash serve? What did we as humanity learn from this crash? It was probably a gigantic bolt from the blue that electrified people who found this out. It was um, Franklin Roosevelt said mm-hmm. in his, uh, uh, his messages, this is to be considered a state secret and tightly controlled, but he formed a non-terrestrial science and technology committee to take advantage of it, and he congratulated the committee, as it says in this memo, on coming to grips with the reality that we are not alone in the universe. And this was probably the first step you have to take to mentally get people to accept this and not think of it as just silly fantasy or that maybe are you drunk or something, but that this was quite real and that we are being visited, uh, probably people considering this for the first time in their lives. It was not part of popular culture, although there was a, a series of comics and movies called Buck Rogers in those days. Sure. That was set in the future with space travel and, and silliness that wasn't taken too seriously. So uh, it had to have been a case of where you gradually um, brought people in and um, braced them up for this shocking reality uh, and uh, what we could do to exploit it. Now you had an event in 1941 that uh, probably galvanized a cadre of people in the military and high levels of government uh, were trying to prepare for what would later be one of the greatest wars this planet has ever seen in World War II to stop the Nazis and the Japanese from their conquests of world domination. Uh, we're trying to ramp up our technological base. Uh, we're trying to uh, get industry to change from a, a mercantile uh, 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 base to a war production footing. Uh, Many, many companies and industries change production so that they focus more on trying to to take care of the needs of the military. Um, Rationing hadn't begun yet, I would guess, but that was probably in the, the offing. And so you've got all this, you know, let's get going. And then in the middle of this, you've got this crash. Now, we learned from the crash probably very quickly that this craft was not operating with a straight six or a V8 engine. It had another form of propulsion. Right. And so that would have been of interest. 
if not just downright baffling to anyone without a great scientific background in atomic um, fission and uh, energy. And uh, that's why it had to go to the top scientists. It wasn't like you could take it to a mechanic who works on cars down the street and say, uh, what do you make of this? How do you make this thing run? Or what's, what's the fuel source? Uh, it, you, you were quite wise to point out the huge impact World War II had when it broke out for America uh, in December. That scattered Cape Girardeau citizens all over the world, the men who were serving in the armed forces. And a classic example is the chief of police in Cape Girardeau probably knew the whole story and was probably called to the crash site, as you would in a small town. Mm-hmm. He did not come back from World War II. He died uh, in 1945 fighting the Japanese in the Pacific. So that gives an example of how this story could remain covered up that uh, many people did not survive the coming years or were told by the military, you know, these are secrets and you will continue to keep these secrets. Uh, Did Cape Girardeau have a particular ethnicity that would cause the FBI to want to open an office there months before this event? Right. We had a large, and we still do, a large German contingent in the Cape Girardeau community, largely farmers, who uh, even had their own Sunday church service service in German. So uh, out of all of these, I'm sure only a tiny number were pro-Nazi or pro-Hitler or what we would call Bundists and that uh, we had to keep this information secret right from the start. It makes sense now why the FBI was called in and swore people to secrecy to make sure that uh, from the get-go that uh, any Nazi spies or saboteurs, as were reported in the area, that's why they opened a field office one month before the crash, did not get a hold of this information. It was a bombshell before even uh, World War II broke out for America that had to be kept under wraps for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So we learned that we were not alone. We learned that, that, that there were sentient beings that we didn't know where they were from. There was a, a technology that they were employing that we were totally unfamiliar with. And given the fact that that we were ramping up for this worldwide effort of World War II, we didn't know if these visitors were friends or foes. You know, were they um, aligned with the, with the Nazis? Was this some sort of a secret weapon? Um, what should our response be? So there were a very good point. You know, we have to keep this secret because we don't know the answers back in 41. And I've never really considered what you just said, that somehow perhaps these creatures were in league with the Nazis or the uh, the uh, Axis powers. And so uh, that was another special reason to keep it under wraps and keep it well guarded and investigate as much as possible. Because uh, who knows, uh, uh, back in 1941, were we under attack and suddenly the plan went awry and this was the result in, uh, of a pro-Nazi organized attack? Now, I don't think that was the case, but we simply did not know back then. Right. All, all, all sorts of reasons why they would want to uh, try to keep the lid on this um, mm-hmm. until they could figure out more. And then you've got the, the, 
the ramp up to war and the actual war, there may not have even been time to do much with this. So where do we think, Paul, this debris and or the bodies, where do we think it was taken? It's a wild story, but uh, ultimately I believe it was taken to the headquarters of where so many people are, Washington, D.C., including the military intelligence people. Uh, Immediately it was taken down the road from Cape Girardeau to the Sykeston Airport, where uh, uh, Linda Wallace is a woman who's done some very fine investigating. Her father was involved in the uh, military training school down there, and they saw a very large plane come in one day, uh, and it was guarded by men who came out with armed, uh, you know, with weapons and and told everyone to stay back. So I think that it was probably flown by a military craft uh, to uh, Washington, D.C., and there's a witness, a couple of witnesses now that have come forward and said, we saw materials that match this kept in a special secret storeroom underneath the U.S. Capitol building for perhaps months at a time. Uh, I know it's uh, pretty wild sounding, but the Capitol building was revered by Freemasons like Harry Truman and President Roosevelt and the vice president. And that... Uh, they would have been very fascinated, Freemasons are, with the space and stars and such. So there was a storeroom at the bottom of it, and uh, Cordell Hull gave a little tour to his cousin, and the cousin told his family later, uh, there were these three dead creatures in glass jars and this round silver spacecraft that was cut up and debris and everything matches perfectly uh, what they claim they saw in the spring of 1941. So that could have been there for a brief time as the, uh, as the military and the government, or at least aspects of, of both of those, figured out what they needed to do. Right, as what I jokingly refer to it as, as the heat dies down. You know, they're keeping vigil and, and, and alert and looking for any other incident or accident or sighting. And in the meantime, keep this hushed and guarded and buried way underground, uh, I have found that it is true that we do have a special locked storeroom seven stories below the U.S. Capitol. They even showed the doors to this on a 60 Minutes report about a year and a half ago. Uh, They were not allowed to take their cameras in, but they talked about this special room. So that might have been it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cordell Hull showed the uh, material to his cousin, who was a trusted pastor at the time. And I was contacted on New Year's Eve this past December of a man who says his father was part of the Roosevelt administration. Uh, he was involved in uh, logistics and statistics and projects of how much they're going to need for funding. And he says his father took me in. It was the last day of school. We went into this special storeroom under the Capitol, and I saw what's described in your books, Paul. Three glass jars with uh, alien creatures and metal. And my father simply said, oh, this must be a special storeroom. And they walked out, and he would not discuss it further. But he remembers that day. It was the last day of school, and he was uh, an impressionable young um, young man. Mm-hmm. And he says, your story is exactly right, Paul. So uh, that is another piece of uh, confirmation from long ago. So we at that point, we, we didn't have the center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, I'm supposing or guessing. And it was oh. because of Cape Girardeau. 
and other crashes that they, military and aspects of government, said, you know, we've got to have a central place to put this stuff. Right. In uh, doing some research, I found their funding skyrocketed and their uh, expansion skyrocketed after uh, the spring of 41 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where they already had a metallurgy lab and were inspecting not only uh, craft from America and how to make them fly better, but recovered crashed uh, spacecraft, uh, or I'm sorry, aircraft from Germany, Japan, uh, some of the hostile countries where we were not familiar with uh, what they were flying around. So it would have been the perfect place to have taken the Cape Girardeau materials eventually, let's say, during the summer and fall of 1941. Mm-hmm. That, that memo from FDR to the Army Chief of Staff that was dated in 1942 also references a crash in Louisiana. Yeah, uh, that it was a found disc. I'm not sure if it crashed or not. And this was something that um, this former uh, CIA and and CIC, Counterintelligence Corps, uh, officer in his late 90s, or in his 90s, uh, typed up this message and said, we found one also in Louisiana. And this is not well known. Yeah, excuse me, that was my my error. It wasn't FDR that was referencing that. It was the uh, former CIA... Uh, agent that had had mentioned that uh, uh, almost as if something was abandoned by extraterrestrials who maybe panicked and left it behind. Uh, I'd sure like to know more about that, but apparently um, that could have been around the same time as the craft in Cape Girardeau. But uh, the information just so sketchy. But uh, it's interesting to know that uh, in 1947, uh, Harry Truman sent someone, uh, General um, Twining, I think it was, to uh, New Mexico, and he filed a report. And it got leaked years later, and it was pretty confidential and top secret. And it said, the artifacts we recovered from the New Mexico desert have been deemed extraterrestrial in nature when compared to the Missouri recovery of 1941. So that tells us, they they mentioned this a second time in the document, that tells us that the Cape Girardeau material really was of another world, and it's the standard by which they measured other crashes and other materials by. So it all fits together, and it's such an exciting story. I just can't believe it hasn't been more explored in the United States uh, popular culture and in the media. Do you think that there's other documents that have yet to be surfaced that uh, are about this? I would think so. Um, I'm sure it was compartmentalized at the time and kept classified, and that generations have come and gone in American government and the military and scientific labs who know nothing about this. It's been so hushed up. But if uh, more documents could be released, it would really, uh, I think, uh, set the story on fire internationally. Uh, I look forward to more leaking of documents, but uh, having worked uh, recently on the JFK story, his assassination, and how the government put a halt to leaking or releasing documents, and ones that they have released have been scrubbed and redacted, and uh, I don't have a great deal of hope that we're going to see anything on UFOs anytime soon. I, I know it requires uh, uh, money, time, uh, energy. Have you done any sort of full-court press with the Freedom of Information Act with aspects of the military and government? Uh, With aspects of the military, no. I did uh, try to contact 
the FBI regarding uh, their field office situation in Cape Girardeau. My grandfather was city attorney back in those days. or He had just quit as city attorney and was a judge in Cape Girardeau. So I asked along those lines uh, for material, but I did not have to go forward with Freedom of Information because they did release that data. Uh, I just don't know quite what we would press specifically for documents um I guess the Army, uh, maybe uh, General George Marshall's papers, but I'm sure many of them have been made uh, public already, but you're not going to release uh, information on UFOs, which were considered state secrets. Mm -hmm. Our special guest is Paul Blake Smith, and he's been with us before. He's back to talk about what happened outside of Cape Girardeau in, we believe, April of 1941, and how that continues to send out reverberations uh, even through today and how that affects us. Stay tuned for more conversation with Paul Blake Smith right after this. Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty and you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. Our special guest is Paul Blake Smith. Paul's website, it's easy to find, M O four one. That's M-O, numerical, 41.info. His books are published by Argus, A-R-G-U-S, Argus Books. You'll also find them there or through your favorite uh, a book trader. William Stillman comes up next week, The Secret Language of Spirit, two weeks from today to celebrate the... Uh, Incredible Battle of Gettysburg in 1960, or excuse me, 1863. On July 7th, Mark Nesbitt joins us. His brand new book, The Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volume 8, is just coming out. Paul, in the back of your book, Three Presidents, Two Accidents, More MO41 UFO Crash Data, uh, it talks about what I'd like to bring up right now in our conversation. This happened in Missouri in 1941, the crash of a flying saucer, a celestial device. Who is a very famous president who was from Missouri? There's another exciting aspect of the story. Is uh, In 1906, a young recruit uh, for the Army, an enlistee really, trained in Cape Girardeau, and his name was Harry Truman. And he was in Washington, D.C. as our U.S. Senator, and uh, ready to convene some military hearings. And uh, he eventually appointed um, the Army Chief of Staff, George Marshall, as his Secretary of State, and they were both very close uh, Freemasons, as uh, was Franklin Roosevelt, who did not support Harry in the recent uh, 1940 uh, election. Uh, Franklin didn't think too highly of Harry Truman, who was mostly a, a, a dirt farmer and a judge in uh, western Missouri. And suddenly, four years after the crash, uh, or even less than four years, President Roosevelt chose Harry Truman to be pretty much the next president of the United States. Out of all the Americans he could have selected, he wanted Harry 
on the ticket, knowing that um, he had poor health, uh, Franklin had poor health, and probably would not make it through a second term. In fact, there's some stories that uh, FDR told his aides he planned to win the war and then retire, be the first president to resign from office. So how could it have gone a complete uh, uh, 180 on uh, the opinion of Harry Truman, who uh, had been in Cape Girardeau, knew many Cape Girardeau citizens and would campaign there, um, it's you've got to believe the information on the crash and what was done with the bodies was shared with Harry. These were his his constituents, and so he may have had an inside track on becoming the next president of the United States due to this affair on a farm outside of my hometown. Uh, Truman then talks with President-elect Eisenhower in November 1952. Uh, they shoot away reporters and talked in private about something very critical. Um, despite great tensions between them, they met in the Oval Office. Uh, and then Truman meets with President Kennedy in January of 1961. Again, reporters are asked to leave. They talk in private about something critical that's never been revealed. Harry S. Truman just happened to be John F. Kennedy's first Oval Office guest in the White House. Right, and when Lyndon Johnson took control of the country after Kennedy's assassination, one of his first guests was Harry Truman, who had something he wanted to talk to Lyndon Johnson about. And Harry was getting pretty old when Richard Nixon took office in January of 69. Mm -hmm. They didn't get along well, but suddenly... President Nixon, one of his first trips was to fly to Independence, Missouri, and meet personally in private with Harry Truman to discuss something. So as long as Harry was alive, he was the first guest that needed to be uh, uh, briefed or debriefed uh, in the, by all the coming presidents. And golly, what could that subject matter have been about? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it would have been known that Something happened in 1941, so FDR, being president, would have known that, and he would have felt compelled then, uh, as duty-bound, to pass that word along to Harry S. Truman. And then Truman, being the bearer of that, because FDR soon passed, Truman then became that bearer of that information. Uh, and it could have been with or without the consent of the secret group that I call the secret keepers, the echelons of military, the political body, and private industry that came together to study this debris, these bodies, to start to control the information, to control the dissemination of facts about this, to muddy the waters, to start disinformation. But you couldn't really control <laughs> Harry S. Truman, uh, short of, I, I guess, killing him. Because he was a, I think one of his favorite mottos was, the buck stops here. Right. And there's a YouTube video of him shooting his mouth off about UFOs. 
it was in the summer of 1952. He was he knew he would be shortly leaving office, and uh, a couple of reporters asked him, uh, "What of what about these spaceship uh, or UFO sightings over the Capitol recently?" Mm-hmm. And instead of saying, "Oh, this is a bunch of nonsense. Don't even ask me this silly subject," he said, "Oh, we've always had UFOs and whatnot, and we've talked to our military people at every conference we had." You can go to YouTube and see this video of Harry admitting that not only were UFOs uh, very real, but they took the subject very seriously, and uh, it was something he probably should not have said, but he did let the cat out of the bag once while he was president. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to know that he showed up in Cape Girardeau in his retirement a couple of times where he met with the editor-owner of the uh, Cape Girardeau newspaper that squelched the story, and at that time, Harry posed with the editor for pictures at the uh, newspaper office, and they said, clear the office, all aides, all staff, everyone out. I've got to talk to this man, the owner of the paper, about something, and they never revealed what it was when the meeting was over. Uh, This happened twice, and twice also during his presidency, Mr. Truman had the Cape Girardeau newspaper up a publisher up to the White House as his special guest. So uh, you know more and more we can put two and two together that uh, the cover-up was continuing and that that some people in the know shared this information. It was just such a juicy secret. You had to talk about it with someone, right? Yeah, and by by friending that newspaper publisher and editor, you also um, had a better handle on and helping him to keep the secret. He, he had more incentive to not go blabbing about this if he was a personal friend of Harry S. Truman. Right. You want to continue to be my friend and come visit the White House or have me come visit Cape Girardeau in your newspaper office in person in my retirement? Continue to keep your mouth shut. The work of Paula Harris for the San Antonio, New Mexico uh, crash in 1945. I had uh, both those boys, um, Jose Padilla and Remy Baca, on the program as guests. Uh, And they were kids that basically rode bicycles up to and and watched the recovery of this thing. Um, I have read the papers... Uh, the status reports put out by Leonard Stringfield, who really specialized in the stories about crashed and recovered UFOs. You know, I've read everything I can get my hands on uh, mm-hmm. about Roswell, uh, the uh, Aztec New Mexico crash. Uh, there's a great book that's out about that, that it's uh, factually based and very, very impressive. And now we add to that uh, uh, your book. So we know that things that are mechanical break, and it could be the luck of the draw. Uh, It could be that maybe the silver lining was that they, those other people out there in the universe, were trying to help us to understand that we are not alone. You know that reference to that captured craft in Louisiana 1942. I wonder if that was just a gimme. Let's put that thing there and let them find it and let them think about what all that implies. 
it's it's mind-boggling even today to consider. But when people say to me, well, I don't believe in alien crashes, they're supposed to be so intelligent with great technology superior to ours, how come they would crash? Well, all I can tell you is American pilots and people who are trained around the world to deal with their aircraft, they get to know them very well, and they know all about weather patterns and our magnetic fields and our uh, gravitational forces, they crash all the time. We still have airplane crashes, despite all that we know. So why can't an alien come here and not be familiar with this and crash? You, you see the logic. Yeah, FDR, in fact, in your book, Three Presidents, Two Accidents, FDR was uh, alleged to have said to Harry Truman in 1944, during your campaigning, don't use any airplanes. That's right. The, the only message that Harry would reveal after his secret, or not secret, but behind closed doors with meeting with FDR when he was selected to be on the ticket was, well, the president told me, stay out of the air. Do not campaign in an aircraft. So Harry went about in a car or by train. Hmm. And uh, so did FDR. And it's very mysterious so why he would say such a thing. So as we did earlier in the show, uh, folks, uh, again, I'd like to make an appeal to the live audience as well as to the people listening to this archive program that if you know of anybody in your family, your circle of friends, relatives that have referenced this, maybe there's memorabilia in somebody's chest. Maybe there's a, an old wardrobe of your great-grandparents or grandparents that were from the Cape Girardeau, the Chaffee, Sykeston area, perhaps even people that had rotated through that Sykeston Air Force Base and had served down there. If you know of anything about this Cape Girardeau crash of 1941, uh, please contact Paul Blake Smith. And Paul, I believe on your website there is a contact apparatus, isn't there? There is. Uh, you can get a hold of an email address, but what is even more simple, uh, as I've had many people contact me at my special Facebook page, which is entitled Cape Girardeau's 1941 UFO Crash, America's First. And so that's just as handy as can be. I've gotten tidbits from people uh, in Cape Girardeau and a few from outside the uh, community who have uh, little um, scraps of information that help confirm the story. And I, I hope that the local papers down there from time to time also would run a story because it certainly is a story that is interesting, I would think, for the readership of those papers, as well as to help you again connect with those families that they may have some unknown tidbit in their memorabilia from their grandparents or great-grandparents. I would agree, although um, I'm sorry to say that newspapers in Missouri, as, long, as well as others around the country, are really scaling back their coverage of stories. You can find so much information online now that newspapers don't have nearly the um, thickness and fullness and a wide variety of stories. They have to go with um, basic things that are going on in the community now just to struggle to survive. So, uh, you know, you could go online and hope that they have a more expanded story there. Mm -hmm. uh, when Paul Blake Smith isn't researching the crash in 1941, what do you do for fun, Paul? 
Oh, I've got a swimming pool right outside my window, and I go out there, and I um, we actually have a, a putting green and a, <laughs> a little pitch and putt right outside my window in my apartment complex, and uh, you can get out and shoot baskets, play tennis. I'd like to do all of that. And in Springfield, we have uh, uh, big fans of the St. Louis Cardinals who come here occasionally for a Springfield Cardinals game. So uh, it's a nice community, very uh, quiet and law-abiding, and Mm -hmm. I do my business, and I've been working on a John F. Kennedy assassination book uh, since November 1st, day and night, Mm -hmm. until just the other day my computer crashed. Oh, no. Yes, and I'm very worried it's in the shop being repaired, at least hoping to. I I hope that you you have the, the data intact on that. I do. I have a flash drive to keep uh, information separate and other ways of uh, backup. This has been Paul Blake-Smith, another conversation with Paul about the crash outside of Cape Girardeau, Missouri in 1941 of a flying saucer, or as they called it, a celestial device. Um, Paul's website is MO41, that's MO numerical 41.info. Paul, thanks so much for being with us, and uh, please keep in contact. I thank you for having me on. It was great. Paul Blake-Smith, our special guest today on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next week's guest, Jim, is William Stillman. He's a first-time guest. The secret language is spirit. Cool. Um, What are you doing for the rest of the weekend, Jim Shorney? Well, I'll, I might be playing radio a little bit. I just You'll find this to be an interesting coincidence. I just looked at Facebook here, mm-hmm. and uh, a ham radio buddy of mine in Missouri that's active in the Parks on the Air program is going to be firing up his mobile station in about half an hour at the Harry S. Truman Birthplace State Historical Monument. Cool. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? Yes, it is. So I might have to run home and try and make contact with him. It's going to be a lot of fun. Our best to Colleen. She's on assignment today. We hope to see her again next week. And uh, we've got a special program coming up. We've got Mesoterra with Vic. He's ready and raring to go here. So we're going to turn over the microphone to, to Vic. He's trying to get the chair out from under Scott as we speak. Now, for six more minutes, if I want it, it's mine. It's, it's yeah. yours, yes. <laughs> now he's, he's not. I'm just kidding. He is waiting anxiously here, though. Raring to go. The KZUM Arts and Culture Festival that was scheduled for today has been rescheduled and postponed until September 29th mm-hmm. due to the weather. You can find out more information at kzum.org. That's all for me. I'm sure glad that you listened today and that you're a part of the broadcast. Thank you so much for all that you do, for your interest and support of our work. And until next week, walk in beauty.